Welcome to the 52nd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In episode 51 of Ear to the Ground, researcher Ken Meter showed in stark terms how one farming region in southeast Minnesota is shipping its economic wealth out of the area. While farmers are producing an impressive volume of raw commodities like corn and soybeans for the export market, local residents are buying food that's often been shipped hundreds or even thousands of miles. So in a sense, money exits the region in two ways, via the exporting of raw commodities and again when consumers make outside food companies and distributors rich by buying their products instead of locally produced food. Southeast Minnesota is not unique. Meter, who is president of the Crossroads Resource Center in Minneapolis, has done analyses of rural communities all across the country. Invariably, his research comes to the same conclusion. No matter how productive farmers are, the current food system seems doomed to bleed local economies of their vitality. The result is shuttered main streets, eroded farm fields, and a brain drain of young rural residents. His finding food in farm country analyses, as he calls them, also show in stark terms the ultimate irony. Some of the richest farming regions in the world often have very poor access to good food. Meter recently presented some of his findings as part of the Women's Environmental Institute's Organic School Lecture Series. In this second of a three-part podcast, Meter shows how the trends he unearthed in southeast Minnesota are being repeated on a state and national level. Okay, I've, I've told you the story of southeast Minnesota, and now I want to look, I want to step up to higher levels of geography just to show you how the story of southeast Minnesota compares with other parts of the United States, very briefly. Let's look at the state of Minnesota as a whole. And as you remember, we have one-fifth of all the farm production in Minnesota in the region we just looked at. So it's not a surprise the charts are very similar in Minnesota as a whole. Minnesota farmers are earning $3 billion less farming now than they did in 1969, despite having doubled their productivity. In the last 13 years, farmers have spent, on average, almost a billion dollars more producing their crops and livestock than they've gotten back from the market in what you'd say is the sixth largest farm state in the country. And what I think is especially notable here is if you look at these trends, they're the same trends you saw in southeast Minnesota, but the numbers are larger. And now you're starting to get a, a sense that this isn't just a few farmers who are bad managers. This isn't some folks who don't know what they're doing in the field. This is an economic system that does not have a way of rewarding this very basic way of creating new wealth in our land by farming. And it's the same system in the state as you have in the region. Let's look at California. A lot of folks would say, well, you know, we have a short season here and we really can't produce that much in the wintertime, so let's consider California the source of a lot of our fresh produce, at least in the wintertime. And it is right now. Unfortunately, California is a net importer of food to the tune of $5 billion a year. And California is giving up some of its, actually the best farmland in California is now Silicon Valley. That's where agriculture started in that state. It was all taken over. It was, first of all, ranches, then wheat farms, and then orchards, and then the orchards got cut down to build houses. A lot of Central Valley that's been orchards and big lettuce and produce fields is being lost to suburban sprawl. I was in California doing a study in 2003, and on the day that I was there, um, I was about here in California, driving past an artichoke field, one of these wonderful, wonderful coincidences of life. National Public Radio comes on with a story telling me that if I had walked across the road to the artichoke field to buy an artichoke at that day, it would have been more expensive than getting one imported from Paraguay because you have cheap land, cheap labor, and an infrastructure set up for exports. 
And so you have a state like California importing its produce from Japan, from China, from Paraguay, from Chile, and being very dependent on distant sources of food. And as they address sustainable agriculture in California, it may put pressure on us to really come up with our own homegrown solutions for having food that we don't have to ship all the way from California. Let's look at the same data now for the United States as a whole. And once again, it's the identical chart, but the numbers are much larger this time. Um, altogether, American farmers are earning $40 billion less farming now than they did in 1969. If you doubted this was a national system, this hopefully will dispel that notion. This is really the identical story faced in Southeast Minnesota, in Minnesota, and in the country. There are some regions where it's different, but this is a, really the national sort of overall trend, because this is really fueled by the corn, bean, and cattle, and hog rotation. That's really what, what fuels this chart. Same story. Farmers have held their costs to the bone for 20 years in a row, while the price has declined steadily since 1979. The only good years we had in the OPEC oil days, leading directly to the farm crisis we had in the mid-80s, leading to even deeper losses right now. Very same story. Now, I'm going to show you the same data on a map of the United States, and I'm going to compare this point in time here where it was low with this point in time for every county in the United States to give you a sense of where these losses occur. That's the map of the United States. A quick look at that map shows that in six of every seven counties in the U.S., metropolitan counties as well as farm counties, farming is worse off now than it was in 1969. And where are the sort of biggest most extensive patterns of loss right in the middle of the, what we call the most productive agriculture in the country, the corn and bean rotation of Iowa, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana. Farmland being lost to urban sprawl in the Chicago suburbs. Some big counties suffering losses here in Minnesota. The Central Valley of California, we were once told this is a brand new kind of agriculture, be more profitable, is now among the largest losses. Farmland being lost, orchards being lost in Florida to housing developments. The losses truly are systemic to the entire country. Let's look at the victories, though. What's very interesting here is that victories constitute a feedlot in a big 30,000 cow dairy in Idaho, feedlot in New Mexico, feedlot in Colorado, feedlot in North Carolina. These are all examples where somebody with a lot of wealth plopped down a brand new big facility that processes a lot of animals or a lot of milk in a short time, taking production from other farms, reducing the margin for those people who are left in the heartland, producing because they, the, the price has gone, and the, in some cases the animals have gone somewhere else. So the moral of this story is if you want to, you know, if you, the, the way to succeed in American agriculture is to have a lot of money, be wealthy, and plop down something new that brushes people out of the market. And if you're, if you're if of the belief that farming is a way of life, that families should share hard times and support each other and kind of build a community around agriculture, you're going to be facing pretty systemic, lo systemic losses. I do want to focus real quickly on Yuma County, Arizona, because this is a pretty good case of this. Um, Yuma County is one of the best counties in the country for farm growth for two reasons. It's on the border, so it's close to labor from Mexico. Buses go into Mexico in the morning and bring 45 workers at a time. They're paid in cash at the end of the day and shipped home with no promise of work for the next day. Federally subsidized water makes it even possible to raise lettuce and other crops in a place that's arid and flat and not very inviting for agriculture in the first place. So another way of success in American agriculture is to have federally subsidized water and cheap labor. How long is that sustainable, especially for the folks who do the work to make that food happen for us so we can have open a cellophane bag at our local grocery store 
and have nice fresh legs come out. This is actually, again, a sort of shocking paradigm of success. So the losses are systemic, the victories are localized, and the victories are not the kind of thing you and I can do. You have to be wealthy to play this game. Basically, it's exactly the places that get the most subsidies are having the most trouble. Now, this, you know, th this data doesn't include subsidies. This is just the cost of production versus the, what you get from the market. But it, you know, the subsidies are not working if your goal is to have a profitable agriculture because essentially what the subsidies do is it, it struck, reinforces the process of taking wealth out of your region. The, I mean, for, for what we'll find as we look into this is that sub farmers pay more paying interest on loans than they get back in subsidies from the federal government. So essentially farmers subsidize us. They subsidize the banking system and the subsidies subsidize the bankers and the input dealers and consumers and the grain traders, but remove the ability of the region to produce wealth for itself. So it, it's a very, you know, it's a very real dilemma as a policy matter to have cash flow subsidies. Same data now, state by state. Five states in the country are better off for agriculture than they were in 1969. Florida, Idaho, Alaska, New Mexico, and Arizona. All farming powerhouses, aren't they? <laughs> and what's the best state in the country? It's Arizona. If you took Yuma County, Arizona out of that slide, Arizona shows up about here. One county is enough to make one state the most rising state in the country for farm production. It's a sign of how fragile even these victories are and how kind of curious they are in terms of thinking about a really good farm system. But unfortunately, Minnesota is the second most losing state in the country right now, even though it's the sixth largest farm state. Follow, uh, right behind Iowa, which is almost $5 billion worse off for agriculture than it was in 1969. Followed by, and this helps answer your question, Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, Missouri, North Carolina, Ohio, New York, California, Michigan, Kentucky. All of the states we consider the most prime farm states in the U.S. being the biggest losers if you look at the cost of production versus the financial return. So big losses from our heartland, from our most productive farms. In fact, if you look nationally, this, this, you know, this red line is the same line you've seen before, but it's more jagged because the scales changed. I wanted to compare the loss of farm income with the doubling of productivity we've had since 1969. Total factor of productivity for farmers has gone up. So from the standpoint of a farmer, it was a bad decision to become more productive because someone else got the money. And it, it, so as we design our, our new food system, we should think it's not just about being producing as much as possible in the shortest time or with the least amount of money. It's about creating some exchanges that actually lastingly are sustainable for you and your neighbors. But productivity by itself as a single economic measure is not the answer. So we have to rethink all that too. Okay, some other national data that will help kind of expand our horizons on this. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported in 2005 that the United States is about to become a permanent net food importer. Now, those of us who believe we feel, feed the world, this is, a pro this is a troublesome reality, I think. It turned out that the Wall Street Journal was a little bit too fast to say this, but they, they reasoned, I think, very accurately that we're now buying some soybeans from Brazil, which is the largest producer in the world of, so of soybeans. We're getting pressure to buy ethanol from Brazil because they can do it cheaper with cheaper labor, cheaper land, and sugarcane than we can do with corn. We're buying some meat from other countries where we used to be basically a, a totally an exporter. Because of free trade, because we have lowered trade barriers and a lot of things that we can ship can trade globally, we have more competitors than we used to have. We're buying more, more and more food from abroad. We're buying 
billions of dollars of fresh fruit and vegetables from other countries right now. We're buying high-end cheeses and wines from Europe because we developed tastes for doing that. But even some of the basic commodities were sort of losing our competitive edge. So the Wall Street Journal in 2005 reported accurately that we were heading down to a negative trade balance, just like we had in the last farm crisis. But um, we have a little reprieve here. The dollar is so weak and grain prices are so high, there's a lot of new exporting value that's been produced on the, on the trade market. So we actually we have a pretty big bump in exports as of 2008, even higher than the two previous peaks, but pre predominantly founded on a weakening dollar. So a double edge to that one, that's that question too. And the, the question still becomes, are we going to become exporters of food or importers in the long term? Right now, half the groceries sold in the United States are sold by the top five chains. The top two of those are Walmart and Sam's Club, which is the same company. They've gone from no groceries to being commanding in 20 years, which shows that just being big isn't enough to keep out your competition. Something else is at work. And 85% of the food industries in this country lack competitiveness because of monopoly power in those businesses. It basically means that we pay more at the store than we would have to for the foods we buy, even though farmers are not rewarded and even though um, the price is considered quite cheap for food right now. Farmers have gotten bigger despite economies of size in favor of one or two person operations. For most farm industries, I did a pretty thorough study of the economics of size literature a number of years ago. It's the small farms that are the most efficient. They're not always the most profitable, but if you believe in spending public resources to create efficiency and to have the best possible production regime, you want to go small instead of going large. A Federal Trade Commission vice chairman took a year off in 1976 and went to the Madison, Wisconsin campus to do a sabbatical year, and he wrote an exhaustive study about the concentration of the food industry that happened in the 1970s. And he concluded that this has nothing to do with creating new efficiency. And he did, he did about an you know, 80-page document that's very compelling in its argument. He kind of looked at it from about 20 different angles and said, this is about people having the money to make it happen and having the money to advertise that it was a good thing. But this did not create new efficiencies in our food system. So our assumption that bigger is more efficient, it's true sometimes, it's not always true. And we have to be careful to know when it really is and when it's not true. And there are some signs that Walmart's profitability has declined as it gets larger. In fact, that's one of the reasons it's going into organic food because it's exhausted the US market and the Chinese market and the clothing market. They've tried all these things in which they kind of burn to a market by lowering the price and then they have to find some new source of profit. So their size is not enough to really command the market in the way that we might assume that a big corporation would be able to do. The average U.S. bank in this country is 1,000 times the size an economist would argue is the most efficient scale for a bank. And this most efficient size is within the realm of the town of Plainview, Minnesota, the banker I work with, a town of 4,000 people. He has $150 million of assets in his bank. That's enough money to have all the electronic technology you need, all the efficiencies of scale that you can get as a banker. Plus, he says, I have efficiencies that bank banks don't have because I know when they, someone comes in the door, I know who they are. I don't have to interview them every time and have them make file paperwork because I know exactly what they're going to do. So he says, I'm actually more efficient in many respects, but he has all those efficiencies and more than a big bank. Yet, it's more, you can make more profit by having a larger institution. So that we've, had, we've had financial pressures and tax incentives to go for larger and larger companies. All of this is happening. Half of all public school students qualify for free and school lunch because their families can't afford full fare for what's basically about a $2.40 lunch in most states, in many states. One of every 10 households is what the USDA would call food insecure. They're not sure at some point during their day where the next meal is going to come from at some point during the year. 
And again, for a country that prides itself on feeding the world, these are interesting numbers to kind of wrestle with. At the same time, over half adults are overweight, and half of the elderly people keep coming in to seek medical care come in undernourished. We like to think that supply and demand balance out, that the economy magically sort of connects people who have a product with people who need a product, and it's going to sort of work out in supply and demand. This is clearly a sign that we're out of balance, and supply and demand are not meeting in the ways we sort of believe they would under what we call a free market system. Food is becoming a leading cause of death in this country. The Centers for Disease Control official who hands out business cards with the back says food is a major cause of death. It's the number two cause. You know, most of the, the number two causes of death right now are food-related. They have to do with things we're eating that we shouldn't be eating or eating too much of them. We also lose 5,000 people who have food poisoning in this country. Another sign of how far consumers have come from knowing the source of their food, knowing what you do to raise food, knowing what it, it takes to keep meat and vegetables separate, knowing what it takes to sort of um, keep that supply clean and healthy and well-cooked, well-prepared. The medical costs of obesity now total $118 billion per year, which is 14% of what consumers now pay for food. It's like I pay a 14 cent tax every time I go to the store to buy food. I pay a dollar for food and 14 cents to a doctor. I'd rather give at least that 14 cents to a farmer to have food that's not going to make me sick. But it's also interesting, this number is half of what farmers receive for all their crops and livestock nationally right now. Half of that value is what it takes to treat obesity in this country. Again, a real sign of how these imbalances are really sort of built into the system. So we started this discussion saying we want a food system that builds health, wealth, connection, and capacity. We haven't found much evidence that any of these things, four things, are actually being met by the way we do food, do, do food now. We have food being a, a major cause of disease rather than health, or, as well as health. We have wealth badly distributed. We have, instead of connection between farmers and, produ- and consumers, we have a separation with a lot of intermediaries. And a lot of us are forgetting how we need to, to live to take care of our food in a healthy way. So it kind of pushes us to think about what do we do next to make this better. Um, you asked a question about New Deal policy. This is going to go back to 1929. This will cover some of the New Deal programs were started in 35, and were kind of finally sort of dissipated in real, in real terms by 1962. Notice in that era, farm income was pretty good for quite a while. It wasn't unanimously, but a terrific spurt after World War II because we had big markets in Europe that we could meet. European men were, had been killed by the war. The fields had been disturbed. They didn't have the ability to produce real rapidly. We ramped up a lot of chemical use, a lot of wartime chemicals that we traded, turned into fertilizers for our farms, a lot of new technology, and made quite a bit of money as a farm sector, quite a bit more money than we made even at the OPEC oil, oil days. But the New Deal policies helped keep those prices stable and actually brought money into the federal treasury for a few years because they're very well-considered policies if you're a white property owner farmer. They weren't so good for farm workers or for black farmers or Latino farm workers and so on. One thing that's fine, this is actually shows the same chart. This is the data for the, the country. It's a little bit more optimistic data than the BEA does, shows, but I wanted to show it for one key reason, and that is that we hear a lot of talk about ethanol saving the farm economy. And even this, this data from 2007 would show when the high prices started kicking in in 2006, we would see a really big kick if uh, farmers were getting a lot more money from that. You notice how exports went up. Farm income, income didn't go up that much. The price of corn has gone up, gone up really high, but the expenses of producing it have gone up even higher in some cases. 
I spoke with farmers who said their input prices went up 70% as soon as the prices for their products started rising. One Minnesota politician says, we're at the best time in agriculture we've been since 1973. That's true. But look how much better it was with good farm policy and with big foreign markets abroad. And the other thing I'd like to point out is that we're actually worse off than we were in 1929 after 10 years of a farm depression, which was a, a major cause of the Great Depression we had in 1929. So yes, we're better off than we've been for 30-some years. It's also true that we have some real dilemmas ahead of us on the farm economy alone. A lot of economists talk about the food economy in this way, as a value chain, where you have producers on one end, the sort of farmers of the future, who create a raw product that gets processed and distributed, and ultimately gets the consumer with a higher value and more convenience. And this is considered a good thing because value is added, and people make money on the way. But what you see very quickly is that the producer and the consumer are not talking to each other in this chain. And so there's no way for the supply the producer has to balance with the demand the consumer has. Supply and demand in that case cannot work because structurally people are held apart from each other. But the other reality is that farmers face, as you know, um, risks of flood, of climate, of late planting, of things that the people in the middle just don't face because they have warehouses and they have temperature control and they have commodities they can trade on a sort of predictable basis. So what happens is the people in the middle who suck all the value out of the system. This is official USDA data that shows that in 1950, farmers earned 41% of the retail value of all the food that was sold in the United States. They're selling at about the same level, but now that's one-fifth of the value at the retail level. This maroon area is all the money that's been made by the intermediaries that doesn't go to farmers and doesn't go to consumers. So the consequence of separating our production from our consumers like that is that we put wealthy people in the middle who then have a different self-interest than we have. I prefer a term I call a value network, where a lot of you folks participate in this already. Um, a lot of you are members of a, say, a food cooperative, where you're not making an investment in having a good place to buy food. You might also invest in a processing plant, so you have a place to process meat safely that you know the people running it are taking care of your needs. You might get active in food policy. You might get active in um, doing some education work or being active in, in one of the local nonprofits. This is, I would submit, how you build connection and capacity in the food system, is having these exchanges that go all the way through the system, where producers and consumers actually do talk to each other about what they need, and they have a conversation that includes the processors and includes the people in the middle. So you have a, the, the chance for everybody to kind of adjust what they're doing so the whole system works better. The third and final installment in this series will feature Ken Meter discussing some of the actions local communities are taking to return food to farm country. For more information on Ken Meter's work, see www.crcworks.org. That's crcworks.org. The website for the Women's Environmental Institute is www.w-e-i.org. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member... 
you'd like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.